Welcome to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises to manufacture here in America. Brought to you by All Metals and Forge Group, with your hosts, Tim Grady and the wife. Hey, guys. Good afternoon or morning, wherever you are. Good morning, Tim. Welcome. Good morning, Lou. Welcome, everyone, to Manufacturing Talk Radio. Uh, we have a very exciting guest that we're going to be talking to today. We're going to be looking at futures, get some information on, on what is happening out there in the workforce and how it ripples through to manufacturing. Before we do that, Lou, why don't you give us an update from last week's show? Uh, last week's show was uh, thomasnet.com and the Institute of Supply Management. And uh, they were talking about their joint uh, partnership uh, on a program called 30 Under 30, having to do with the millennials and having to do with uh, inspiring them to rise to the level that they're excited to come to work, they're excited to uh, be in manufacturing, they're excited to be in the purchasing chain, and so on. Um, the, some of the problems that were brought out by... Uh, uh, one, another guest that we had on, which was Powell Manufacturing in Phoenix, Arizona, uh, that was two weeks ago, was talking about uh, the problems that he has in hiring people and the fact that uh, the millennials are coming in not knowing a lot and some with entitlement attitudes. And the other problem being the gray hairs are beginning to... Uh, slip slide away off into the ocean on a nice flow and uh, the problems that that all brings. Uh, the guest that we have today is going to be looking at uh, one of the topics that we're going to be talking about is looking at that from 30,000 feet from this issue on a global basis. He is a, um, a, a senior uh, economist and uh, I would let, like to let uh, Tim do the, that intro, and uh, let's learn about our guest. Tim? Great, Lou. Uh, we certainly appreciate uh, uh, the comments. And about last week, we also had uh, Karen Norheim, Vice President of uh, Marketing and IT with American Crane and Equipment Corporation, and Tracy Tenpenny, who is owner and Vice President of Sales and Marketing for Tailored Label Products. They shared some really insightful information for working with millennials and working millennials into your organization. Today we're talking with Cliff Walden. Uh, Cliff is a senior economist with, now, the organization's name is MAPI, M-A-P-I. And Cliff Waldman, uh, we would like to introduce uh, or have you give us an idea of, uh, of MAPI, but introduce yourself to our audience and let's talk a little bit about what MAPI does. Cliff? Well, thank you very much. Uh, Cliff Waldman here. I am a senior economist with, uh, with the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. We are, we are first of all, a small company. Uh, our entire staff is something like 42. Uh, but I'm also proud to say that we have been quite a, around for quite a long time, for uh, 81 years. Since the born in the depths of the Great Depression, when you know another period of time when some new economic thinking was needed, um, we've come into our own as kind of a um, combination trade group and think tank for the manufacturing sector. We are a member-supported company, mo about 350 um, member companies. Uh, mostly large, globally-oriented manufacturers, as is, is the manufacturing sector going, you know, thinking, thinking about the globe as a place to do business. Although we have some smaller companies, I'm happy to say, as well. Um, we do two things for them. We have a 25-council peer discussion network. Each one of the councils consists of um, professionals that represent almost any large company position, HR, procurement, manufacturing, IT, etc. Those councils are run by our professional staff. They meet face-to-face -face twice a year, although we use all of the available technology of the day to keep the discussions going throughout the year, and they, they sort of... Um, talk to each other about problems, challenges, best practices, 
and it, it, it's kind of an interactive executive education program. The second uh, part of what MAPI does, which is what I'm involved in, what the economics team does, is we're kind of a think tank on manufacturing economics. We have a, a robust um, research, analysis, and writing program. We put out um, forecasts on all aspects of global economic activity that matter to manufacturers. I, I write and speak on the global economic picture as a whole throughout the year. Uh, some of my colleagues are respected experts on different parts of the globe. We have a Eurozone expert. We have a, an Asian expert. We have a Latin American expert. We have a, a, a U.S. industrial um, expert. But even but even that is, is, is not good enough for the complex manufacturing sector in the complex day. Beyond our global and regional economic reports, we have to delve into the many interesting issues that are confronting manufacturing at a time of great change. The many issues surrounding the labor force, the many issues surrounding technology, the many issues surrounding government policy on, on all levels of government, state, state, local, and federal. Um, and we use the, the tools of modern economics and statistics to uh, create research that helps to enlighten manufacturing executives, um, the media, uh, and uh, and policymakers on uh, on on what would be a driver of a healthy, um, efficient manufacturing sector. So again, uh, we're a two-part organization: a trade group and a think tank. Uh, Cliff, let me ask you this: uh, this is uh, clearly a very uh, broad and very uh, deep uh, analysis of what you do. Uh, and I've been following your, your organization for years and have found it to be uh, extremely vital and extremely uh, on the money, as they say, at the track. Uh, we um, are interested in hearing how uh, you have 350 member organizations. How does all this information, which has such great value for not only your member organizations, but trickle out into the mainstream manufacturing. And the, the mainstream manufacturing uh, in this country is uh, basically small to medium size. Uh, the, the, some of the ideas and principles and information and training and so on that you have, would, I, I would think would be vital for uh, particularly that uh, middle market. Can you uh, respond to that? Well, it, it, indeed it is. Again, it, we, we are informing the world through our research, our insights, and our council discussions on um, how the manufacturing sector is evolving, what's going to be strong, what's going to be weak, what countries are going to matter, what government policies are going to matter, where the problems might be, you know, as best we can. And for any player in the manufacturing economy, and you say, yes, certainly like in any sector of the economy, it, it is dominated by small and medium-sized companies. That, that is true of any sector of economic activity. But uh, the large players in manufacturing are, are, have, create a disproportionate amount of the output, and they are really sort of the pinnacle of supply chains that small players play in. So, uh, w you know, when I use the, the somewhat worn-out metaphor that they're all in the same boat, it really is more, or they're all tied together by uh, the same string, it really is more true in manufacturing, given its supply chain nature, than any other sector. So just, you know, a, a general understanding of the complex global atmosphere that this rapidly changing, technologically changing, labor force changing manufacturing sector is playing in with aid the largest manufacturer who was you know has a presence in sixty or seventy countries to the small, you know, twenty person manufacturer that may be in the supply chain of one of those large manufacturers. Um, information and analysis and insight uh, speaks for itself. It's a value to anybody who's playing the game these days in the business world. Are your reports uh, available to the uh, general manufacturing uh, audience? 
You can, yes, they are. The, the most, uh, I, you know, 80, 90% of them are. Go to uh, the website, www.maypie.net, and we keep, you, we keep our uh, report stream very updated. You can see what the latest ones are there. Click on it, and we, we hope people will read and comment and, and make suggestions to us. Uh, Maypie.net, M-A-P-I.net, and our, our reports are posted um, in a very timely manner. Uh, I thank you for that. And uh, actually, your last report uh, about the uh, aging and urbanizing world, uh, do you want right. to introduce us a bit to that? Because uh, it kind of reflects back well, yep. what we've discussed over the last week or two uh, on other shows. Uh, but this time you, it would be from a 30,000-foot view as opposed to uh, at ground zero. Well, yes, the millennials are certainly getting their their, their share of uh, ink and, and discussion these days, and they're, they're an interesting group. But, you know, as economic research um, has progressed over the decades, it, you know, we've learned more and more about what matters to economic activity. And generally, people, when they understand economic activity, they think in terms of economic growth, um, interest rates, uh, manufacturing output, employment, all of the basic economic variables that are reported on the business media every day and that uh, business people and policymakers think about um, every day. But as research has progressed, we have learned that one of the things that is also driving and shaping the business environment are demographics. Now, for a while, demographics were sort of an academic discussion. We were talking about things that were going to happen 20 years from now, 50 years from now. Population changes are, you know, are not going to happen in, uh, you know, next week, like, like a Fed decision may be, or like an employment report, or like you know, stock market volatility. But now we are uh, – but it, it's interesting how push has matched up. As we've come to understand how demographics impact economic activity, we have also it, – it, it, it the understanding has arrived just in time for a point in time where demographics are happening right now. Global population is slowing dramatically. Global aging is starting to accelerate. The share of global populations that are in the working age cohort, generally speaking, 15 to 64, something of great interest, of great importance to the business world, is starting to slow down. So we've come to understand, we have the, the research and the understanding and the insight as to how this is affecting economic activity just at the point where these change, these population changes that matter to business, that matter to the shaping of the business environment, are starting to, to not become in the future, but uh, are become, happening right now. Hence my interest, that demographics has been one of my areas of specialty. And the reason I did this report on a global level is because, you know, manufacturers are playing in a global environment. Uh, you can't just look at the U.S. for anything anymore. The, it, it, it's a global picture out there, and the global picture is one of dramatic change. We, the United Nations, is predicting that population in the um, population growth in the advanced economies, which is generally the U.S., Canada, the U.K., Eurozone, Japan, is slowing to almost is coming close to zero percent growth. And in 20 years or so, might actually start going negative. We might actually start seeing a depopulation in um, in uh, the uh, in the advanced economies, and even the growth of uh, the populations in the, the major developing economies, China, India, Brazil, is starting to slow uh, down and slow down dramatically. I think you can see right away where that has dramatic implications for. Anybody who has to hire people uh, for, for manufacturers. The one thing, the one area of interest that I think my report pointed out for manufacturers and anybody who's playing in a global business environment is Africa. While the trajectory is one of slowing population, a falling share in the working age cohort for most uh, regions of the world, Africa for now is really becoming a very positive 
demographic outlier. We see, at least for a while, contrary to the rest of the world, the uh, working-age cohort and therefore the labor force is going to grow um, in Africa. So with all of Africa's many, many, uh, many um, social and humanitarian challenges that we've all seen uh, over the past few months, um, it's becoming an interesting place for business, for manufacturing, partially because of its advantageous, currently advantageous, demographics. Let me ask you this, uh, Cliff. Uh, with the uh, reduction of, uh, potentially the, the reduction of labor force, which is already happening, you're right, I, I agree with that, uh, that's going to have a major impact on uh, labor costs, uh, not only here in the United States, but even in some of the quote-unquote cheap labor countries, China, India, and so on. Uh, would, you, right. would you comment on that? Well, right now, you have two countervailing forces right now, and it's hard to say when one is going to tip into the other. Right now, in the United States, wage growth has been sluggish. It's picking up just a little bit lately because we are, just, we are coming off of the worst recession in modern times, the worst recession since, since Maypie began, since the, the Great Depression. And that, uh, along with um, the, you know, the, gra- the increasingly rapid use of labor-saving automation, has created kind of a stagnant situation uh, for wages. So, so the economic environment, the post-2009 crisis environment, is really a negative for wages. But as labor becomes more scarce... You're right. It's going to become more expensive. The qu- when these two tip over and one to the other is hard for anybody uh, to predict. Now, you know, it, it, that brings up an interesting point that I, I think um, helps to illuminate an often misleading um, public policy debate. Often, when we speak of these labor-saving technologies, these new technologies, 3D printing, the Internet of Things, robotics, it's often spoken up of in an atmosphere of some fear. That, my God, robots and 3D printers, it means there's going to be fewer jobs. These robots are going to replace people on the factory floor. But I think you have, I think uh, the, the, the understanding of this dynamic has to be a little broader than that. Because of demographic challenges, manufacturers and, and really other business people have, ha- have had a great incentive toward implementing labor-saving um, technologies because they can't get people. It, it, it works the other way, too. So, uh, you know, and, and, there, and that raises productivity somewhat, but it's also somewhat of, of uh, attention with job creation. So it's not just... New technology is threatening jobs. It's labor scarcity is caused by demographic trends, creating the incentives for the new labor-saving technology. So that, that's another virtue of looking at these population changes. They give you a broader and, I think, a more mature, more sophisticated look at these issues that we talk about almost every day in the media. Does that help? It sure does, Cliff. And uh, we're talking with Cliff Waldman of the Senior Accounts with the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. And, uh, Cliff, we're going to take a quick commercial break here, and we'll be back in about 90 seconds with Manufacturing Talk Radio. Thank you. Premier Rewards Gold Card from American Express. The rewards points can keep on multiplying. Buy three with triple points on airfare. Buy two with double points on gas and groceries. And a single point for pretty much every other dollar you spend on the card. Then, start choosing from over a million rewards to redeem all those points. Apply today and the annual fee for the first year is on us. Call 1-800-AXP-GOLD or visit AXPGOLD.com. The annual fee for the card is $175. See terms, conditions, and restrictions at AXPGOLD.com. UPS Protection has been protecting systems in the U.S. against brownouts, blackouts, and poor quality power for over 25 years. We provide power protection systems, including UPS, lighting inverters, generators, and service for clients from coast to coast. 
We specialize in solving all your power needs. As a direct reseller of the best brands in the industry, including Liebert, Powerware, and APC, we can solve all your power protection needs. Protecting your power is our main goal. We offer on-site or depot repair of our critical equipment. To better serve your budget constraints, UPS Protection also offers both reconditioned and new products. And let's give a quick shout-out to All Metals and Forge Group, your best source for open-die forgings and seamless rolled rings in alloy, carbon, stainless, and tool steels, nickel, aluminum, titanium, and copper. To learn more, simply visit their website, steelforge.com, or send us your request for quote. That's steelforge.com. And now back to the show. Well, we are speaking with uh, Cliff Waldman. Cliff is a senior economist with the Manufacturers Alliance for Productivity and Innovation. And just before the break, Cliff, you mentioned this, uh, this fear factor about jobs disappearing from the factory floor. Uh, you know, right. I was talking with Lou just before the show, and I, I asked him, are we seeing the death of the blue-collar worker um, you know, if, as automation and technology creep in? And, and in fact, we see, I think, uh, fewer people in trade unions. Uh, what is the, you know, what's the outlook for the next 20, 10 or 20 years, Cliff, on uh, those blue-collar jobs? Do we expect to see fewer of them? It depends on what we do. It's not an inevitable course. Um, nothing, nothing stays the same in economic, in economic sphere. It's always changing. And, you know, the, the, you know, the skilled labor of one decade is the unskilled labor of the next decade. It's all relative to technology. If we, uh, the, the, um, the implementation of new technologies is accelerating. This is an interesting period for process innovation. That's, that, is, that is a certainty. What will happen to the worker? Well, if we make the investment that I believe we need to make in upgrading the skills of our existing workforce, and it, I believe it has to be both a public and a private investment, both a public and a private investment. If we do that and do that properly and do that in a foresighted manner, then our blue-collar workforce will not only survive, but they'll thrive. There'll be a more capitalized workforce. There'll be a workforce doing more interesting, more challenging jobs. So there, there's no uh, this is not, you know there's no inevitable answer to that. It entirely depends on whether we are smart enough to make the investment in the in the um, in the workforce as the technology and the, the very nature of the factory floor changes um, all around them. We we have to be smart. If we become smart, they'll become smart. If we're smart, they'll be smart and we'll thrive. Uh, I, I, I hope that answers the question. Sure, it does, Cliff. And uh, another thought is as the labor pool becomes more constrained and the cost of labor rises, does the smaller manufacturer have a real issue in staying in business? I mean, I would guess that some manufacturers will accelerate automation, robotics, and technology the smaller manufacturer doesn't have that kind of capital to invest. Are, are they well, going to become dinosaurs? Always. I'm sorry. I'm just wondering if they're going to become dinosaurs. It's a difficult position. Just by remember, most of the economy is smaller companies. Just by definition, they are labor constrained. Um, I think that uh, over time, the, the, the successful smaller companies will be able to slowly make the investments that they need um, to get the people that they need. But again, I think just like we want to make an investment in our workforce, we want to keep a public uh, support system going for our small companies to allow them them to succeed in an environment. We can change change, as I often tell people. That's going to happen. But for those who need the most help to really sort of adapt to change, the blue-collar factory floor worker, the smaller manufacturer, if we make the smart investments in them, it will come back to us multiple times over. 
Okay. Okay. Well, that certainly begins to make sense because that's certainly one of the one of the concerns. Now, your paper, an aging, urbanizing world, dealing with uh, manufacturing globally. Are we talking? Give us an idea. Are you talking about uh, that aging occurring, you know, in the city proper and the surrounding areas where manufacturers are clustered? Is that what we're looking at? Well, I just did. I just. I use UN data. The UN has wonderful data on uh, population and urbanization. It is the, it's really the only credible source of global, um, uh, you know, uh, data on demographics. And I looked at the forces that I just talked about uh, of aging, population change, uh, the share of the population in the working age cohorts, urbanization. I looked at these on a global level and then for all the major regions of the globe. And as I said, I came to the conclusion that the dramatic demographic shifts are happening throughout the world, but that, um, that you know, there's a slowing population growth that we may come to the point in a couple of decades, which is not that long from now, of depopulation in the advanced economies. Africa is an interesting, despite its many challenges, is in an interesting and advantageous, advantageous uh, position now. And as I said, it, it, you know, it, it, you know, you have to really look at these things globally because the manufacturer, whether it's the large manufacturer directly or the small manufacturer who's in the supply chain of the large manufacturer and therefore is indirectly affected by the world, because those guys have to think world, not just United States or just one country or even just one or even just North America. The world is becoming a smaller place economically, particularly for all manufacturers and these global population forces are hitting at a point where they are directly and will directly affect the business environment. Cliff, I'd like to I hope that answers it. Yes, you did. Uh, I'd like to uh, make a comment on uh, one aspect of your report uh, where you talk about the various uh, industries that are changing uh, their financials from the year 2013, 14, and 15. And I'd like to just to comment on a, on a couple of them um, and, and get your uh, insight into your crystal ball. Um, and, and I'm doing this somewhat of a from a self-serving aspect uh, for our uh, forging metal company. Uh, we do notice that uh, in your report, you're showing that uh, uh, aluminum uh, production and processing is going to just go through the roof by 2014. Uh, the metalworking machinery builders also uh, this year and next year are going to be booming. Uh, engine and turbine and power trans transportation equipment. Uh, aerospace is really off the charts. And uh, I know that General Electric, for example, uh, not General Electric, uh, uh, Saffron, and uh, um, I believe, yeah, I think it is General Electric is coming out with a new engine technology called LEAP. And uh, all of these things are adding to uh, us having a very prosperous uh, 14 and primarily 2015. Um, can you give us some insight into your, your crystal ball as to, you know, where, where and how this has happened? And uh, I'm going to push you, your curve a little bit and take a look at uh, uh, 2016 because I can't imagine that everything will just go into the toilet. So uh, well, that's the, 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 the thought. Well, the industry now, the, the specific industries is not from my report. That not, not from the report that we're talking about uh, right now, anyway. Uh, the specific industry analysis uh, is, is, is a quarterly report that is done by Dan Mextroth, who is our chief economist. And he focuses on specific industries. I look at more broader uh, macroeconomic, uh, you know, uh, issues. Now, in terms of, manu of economic strength and manufacturing strength for this year and for next, as we all know, as we've read about and heard about sometimes multiple times in a day, the recovery from the, the terrible recession of 
2008 and 2009 has been a frustratingly slow. And it's been frustratingly slow. For It's been one of the slowest. We had one of the deepest recessions of the post-World War II era. And this has been one of the slowest recoveries of the post-World War II era. Now, manufacturing originally, coming out of uh, 2009, was somewhat of the star player in an otherwise weak recovery for a couple of reasons. One of which is that China, large emerging market economies that manufacturers have large investments in, um, recovered a little faster from, in a technical sense from 2008 and 2009, the global downturn, than we thought they were. So that was one thing. Second of all, we had a huge inventory swing coming out of 2009. Inventories were liquidated during the financial crisis just to raise cash in some cases. But when there was even a modest turn in the economy, the inventory, uh, inventory shelves had to be restocked very quickly, and that favored manufacturers. But after that, manufacturing got kind of caught up in the problems of the U.S., the, the policy uncertainty issues in the U.S., the weak business investment, which sort of remains with us uh, in the U.S., the, the global uncertainties, which have given rise to kind of a weakish um, export environment. Manufacturing, therefore, has been, you know, I would say has been in a period of moderate growth. We expect it to accelerate a little bit, but to remain moderate. Remarkably, um, manufacturing, while the, US, the economy has recovered its lost output and did uh, from the uh, the Great Recession and it bottomed in uh, 2009, and it recovered its lost output in the third quarter of 2011. Amazingly, manufacturing still is recovering. It still has not fully recovered its its lost output, and that's and even though it's been growing faster than the economy as a whole, that's because from peak to trough. In the Great Recession, the economy lost about 4.5% of output. Manufacturing lost a little more than 20%. Now, it's always more volatile than the general economy, but we are still recovering in manufacturing. So all told for manufacturing and for the economy, it remains a kind of grinding, frustrating recovery with more constraints than strengths, but it's just, it's kind of like a slow forward motion. Do you think that... Hopefully uh, that answers your question. Uh, thank you. Uh, do you think that uh, the lending institutions, if they were a bit more lenient with their lending uh, uh, requirements, to the small to medium-sized companies would give, more, one, more confidence to the manufacturer, and two, and most importantly, is that they would give them more capital to rely on to be able to make decisions, expand, grow, and so on. Well, it would help. That situ- the credit situation has gotten a little better, although the, the situation with capital spending is, is a, you know, a little bit unusual. Even the large, we have large corporations who are absolutely flush with cash, have more cash than they can possibly know what to do with, yet they are not investing in, in equipment, in productivity enhanced equipment. We're not seeing capital spending, business equipment spending at the rate that you would expect given historical norms. So, yes, um, it, if the credit situation just uh, eases more and more, that will certainly help. That has be, certainly been one constraint, and it's been a constraint given the nature of what happened, the bursting of a, a, not only a housing but a credit bubble in 2008 and 2009. But I think part of it, I think an even larger part of this is just kind of post-crisis confident, general confidence in the economic system and in the certainty of policy and the uh, was very shaky, and it's gotten a little better, but it, it remains shaky. People are afraid to take risks. They're not sure what's happening in the global environment. They're not sure what's happening with U.S. policy. All of it's gotten a little better. It's, it, we're moving forward even on that score, but confidence is just not what what is needed to really get the strong rebound, the strong growth that we need after such a difficult period. Did anyone Back get to you. I hope that answers it. It did. Uh, this morning, the uh, consumer confidence number came out, and unfortunately, I was tied up in the studio. Uh, did anyone hear that number today? Did, 
I'm getting a lot of shaking heads. Uh, Cliff, by any chance, did you hear that number? No, I did not. I, I don't, you know, consumer confidence numbers are interesting. There, there's a question about how much they really, uh, they really correlate with consumer spending. It's, it's a big argument um, here. Really, what, what's affecting the consumer is, uh, uh, is a difficult but modestly improving job market, is stagnant wages, is um, issues with, you know, savings and retirement as the population ages. I, I think those are the more fundamental things that are kind of putting somewhat of a constraint on consumer spending rather than short-term fluctuations in confidence, which I'm never entirely convinced have a huge impact, at least, at least short-term, in spending. The only impact I think that it does have is that, you know, if you hear good news on the radio or television, you're feeling good and thinking good, and you go out and you spend that extra $100 on XYZ. It, it may be, yes. It's almost like a, uh, um, uh, a phony medication to make you feel better. Uh, In some cases, that might be the case. Uh, again, there, there's a question. There's actually somewhat of a question about that whether we've we've actually observed that um, or not. But in, in any case, it, it's the fundamental issue of wages, um, job jobs, wages, and the, the issues of aging, the, the financial issues of, of, of aging, of retirement, retirement savings that are really impacting um, consumer spending. Cliff, a new issue that I was hearing about this week that apparently has been taking place for some time, and we're talking about, uh, you know, what's the government policy and what's going to happen there. Apparently, the United States has progressed to the point where we now have the highest uh, corporate tax rate in the world at 35%, and corporations are doing what I think is called a corporate inversion and ownership, and that is the buy a company in the Netherlands or Finland, and they move their corporate ownership and thus their headquarters overseas where the tax rates are 12%, 20%. Certainly that has to have huge economic impact on the United States down the road. Have you been uh, analyzing any of that from uh, Maypie? Well, we have taxation is not my personal specialty, as you might imagine. It, it's quite an involved area, and there are people who do quite a bit of work on it. But let, let me repeat. But I think in thinking about how to yes, yes, there are multiple problems with um, uh, the U.S. corporate tax system, both in a domestic and and as you mentioned, in a global uh, matter. But I, I think, like everything else, the solution has to be global these days. There is the, I am convinced that we can find a corporate tax system that benefits large, you know, the industrialized world if the industrialized world works at it, works at it as a whole, works at it, you know, in a unified manner. Because nobody really wins with a corporate tax system that creates these incentives for races to the bottom, it distorts activity, it, it creates inefficiencies in, in the global economic system. I think if the industrialized economies were to have a summit to think about what is an efficient, um, uh, productivity-inducing, capital-spending-inducing, um, optimizing tax system for our countries as a whole, as the global economy becomes more tied to each other, we would all benefit greatly. We cannot think about this race to the bottom, uh, you know, one country versus the other. It's creating the kinds of things that you are saying, and it's sapping the, the economic strength, really, of the whole world in some ways. It's an important issue, and we need to think about it in a global context. Uh, I hope that at least Thank you, Cliff. And by the way, uh, before we uh, cut to the break, uh, just an update on that consumer confidence number. Uh, one of our aides here went and got that for me. Um, the number came out at 85.2, and it was uh, forecasted at 83.5. So uh, it's, uh, that's a good, uh, good jump in the numbers, and uh, um, I hope the placebo effect works uh, well with the buying market. The, the other point uh, I did want to mention uh, uh, about Thomas Net and ISM, that if anyone has any interest in hearing more about uh, the 30 Under 30 program 
and or would like to make a recommendation for a candidate, which is now up to 146. Uh, you can email uh, Linda Regano, who is the Executive Director of Media Relations at ThomasNet, and her email address is L Regano R A R I G A N O at thomasnet.com. Uh, give her an email, and she'll be happy to uh, work with you and uh, give you any information you need. That being said, Tim. Yeah, let's go to the break. SNH Rubber is a manufacturing company in Fullerton, California. We specialize in custom molded, extruded, and stamped rubber parts. If your next job requires a rubber part, we would appreciate the opportunity to quote on it. We serve aerospace, automotive, and many other industries. We work with many types of rubber, including silicone, EPDM, neoprene, uninitrile, and Viton. Our quality system is ISO and AS9100 approved. Over our 47 years in business, the SNH brand has become known for superior quality, quick turnaround, and competitive pricing. Please check out our website at www.shrubber.com or call 714-525-0277. Let SNH be your ceiling solution. And here's another solution for you. All Metals and Forge Group, the sponsor of today's show, an ISO 9001 and AS9100 registered company. They provide manufacturing and industrial companies with quick price and delivery quotes and clean quality forgings for their parts from aircraft engines to gear blanks and downhole shafts, hubs or subs. Go to steelforge.com and send us your request for quote for any open die forgings or seamless rolled rings, anywhere from 20 pounds to over 80,000 pounds. That's steelforge.com. All right, let's back to the show, and as we wrap this up in the next five or ten minutes here. Well, welcome back, our listeners. By the way, last week's show, we had such a surge in listenership that we blew up a pipe, and some of you were not able to listen to the whole show uh, we would encourage you go to go to manufacturingtalkradio.com and listen to it. I think it's right now on our homepage. It will become part of our previous show list, so uh, take a look at that. Um, and we're back with Cliff Waldman, uh, senior economist. Uh, Cliff, anything about uh, this paper or this subject that you would like to wrap up here as we uh, come to the conclusion of the show? Well, in um, in doing their planning, I would urge manufacturers particularly, but certainly all businesses, to consider demographic changes. Population changes affect us all. They affect all of business. Um, and uh, I, you know, I fully sympathize with the fact that there's so much for business people, for manufacturers to have to think about and pay attention to, and they don't need anything else on their list. But I, I'm strongly suggesting that. Um, for their own benefit, that they add population shifts and demographics to their list. They'll, they'll benefit if they spend a little extra time thinking about these things. Well, I certainly think that makes sense, and it sounds like uh, MAPI is a great source for getting that information, and your report is very helpful. Uh, that can be found at mapi.net. Uh, again, if you want to hear this show or a previous one, it is mfgtalkradio.com. Um, Cliff, we want to thank you for being a guest on the show. This has been some terrific information. I'm just, uh, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners are concerned about this shift in, uh, in the labor force where it is an era of constrained labor supply. And, and we all wonder, A, how long is it going to last? And B, what's it going to cost us? Any insight into that? Well, uh, I hate to be, bring the bearer of be the bearer of dour news, but I think, the, as I say in the report, um, the era of constrained labor supply is really just beginning. And in, in addition to that, it's, it, while demographics are a major force on labor supply problems, they're not the only one. We, the United States, has not. I would say, let's get back to the U.S. The United States has not 
fully invested in the development of, of the manufacturing workforce that we need in this globally competitive environment. We have an influence our students into the benefits and the value of, of a manufacturing career. So besides demographics, those things um, have to be considered. Now, what does that mean for the, the manufacturer, for manufacturing executives? As I often tell people when I give speeches, the labor market is no longer providing you with a finished product. It's a slightly crude metaphor, but it's no longer providing you with a finished product. You are going to have to take the people you hired and consider them to be a raw material and develop the, the, the labor that you need. So you have to partner. You have to think in supply chain ways. You just you know, take out the supply chain metaphor and, and bring, it, bring it to the labor force. You have to partner with government agencies. You have to certainly partner with the educational system. That's critical. Relationships between manufacturers and the educational system are going to be critical in this era of constrained and difficult labor supply problems for manufacturers. Well, I absolutely believe that's true. And matter of fact, we have talked about that on uh, some of our previous shows, and we're looking forward to a show where we're going to talk to some of the educational institutions, the universities across America, asking them what are what are their experiences working with the supply chain. Uh, now, you've mentioned Africa a couple of times. I find that intriguing. Uh, do you think the Africa workforce is going to become the new China? Well, I, I think that may be a bit of an exaggeration, but we are seeing some interesting changes in that continent. First of all, uh, economic growth has been accelerating. There's just been more economic growth. They are starting to think, even with all of, of the let, – let's not kid ourselves about the dramatic humanitarian um, and you know, social strife in Africa. It's huge. But in addition to growing economic growth, they're starting to think like modern economies. They're, they're, they've been talking about a space program for Africa. They've been talking about manufacturing hubs for Africa. As my report shows, demographically, Africa is, is in a, a, a you know uh, an enviable, enviable position within the world. They, while the rest of the world is going to be suffering from a shrinking labor force, they for a while, it's not going to go on forever, but for a while, they're going to see a growing labor force. So uh, a combination of things is easing the problems uh, on that in that difficult part of the world and creating, I think, more business opportunities, more manufacturing opportunities in a difficult part of the world. And while I'm not sure that Africa is going to become the next China, I think it can be um, an interesting and buoyant um, part of the world as we go into the next decade or two for global manufacturing. Uh, Cliff, we're going to be wrapping up here in a moment or three. Uh, I would like a little insight from you regarding... Uh, uh, our friends to the south in uh, South America, namely uh, Brazil, Argentina, Chile, and so on. Um, I'm, you know what? Uh, unfortunately, I'm less excited. That's an important region. It's an important region for the United States. I am, I'm somewhat actually less excited by what's going on there than I am what's going on in Africa. Now, obviously, this does not include Mexico. NAFTA has proven to be, as some of our other, my colleagues have written reports on NAFTA, and NAFTA, as we just passed its 20th anniversary, has proven to be a great success, much to the benefit of Mexico. But you go south of Mexico, and while we are always hoping that Brazil would arrive in terms of being a modern, dynamic economy, it just, it, you know, it, it seems to be getting close, and then it takes it takes one step forward and ten steps back. Uh, we can have an entire discussion on this, but one of the things that frustrates me about um, South America, about Latin America, is the lack of regional integration. If they would just open up trade routes within that region, they have trade with you know other parts of the world. But if Brazil would open up a strong trading relationship with um, Argentina, Argentina with Mexico, if they really had strong intra-regional trade, they can open up a much better day for themselves. But they have very self-defeating 
trade policies, very self-defeating social policies, and that economic model needs to be revisited. It's getting spent, and, and unfortunately, although it shouldn't be, I am not as enthusiastic about Latin America, about the country south of Mexico, at, at the moment, uh, interestingly enough, as I am about Africa. Well, Cliff, thank you for that uh, input, and uh, we appreciate uh, everything that you've uh, brought to us today. It's uh, certainly exciting, and uh, you are truly, truly an expert in your field, and I want to thank you for being on the show and hope that we can uh, turn to you again in the future, perhaps uh, at, at the end of the next quarter when, the, when your next report comes out. Uh, but we can talk. Well, uh, yes, you certainly can. My pleasure, and I, I want to thank you very much for the invitation and the opportunity. Uh, that's terrific. Uh, I want to remind everybody that in about uh, an hour or so, we will have this show uh, up on our website, mfgtalkradio.com. You'll be able to hear it in its entirety. And, um, uh, Tim, it's uh, back to you. And hopefully we uh, stayed online today. We didn't blow up a pipe or a server someplace. We've done it a couple of times in our uh, in our short uh, history for Manufacturing Talk Radio. But that wraps up our show for today. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Back next week at uh, Tuesday, 10 a.m. Pacific, 11, I'm sorry, 1 p.m. Eastern for Manufacturing Talk Radio. Bye for now. Take care. You've been listening to Manufacturing Talk Radio, the only show that takes a look at the obstacles and opportunities open to small to mid-sized enterprises to manufacture right here in America. With your host, Tim Grady and Lou White, brought to you by All Metals and Ford Group. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.